The Intermediate Line advises a language and concept warning for the entire show. The Intermediate Line is brought to you by nervouswater.com.au, Thomas and Thomas Rods, Shilton Reels and Cortland Lines. Ketterfly, Australian-made apparel, made by flight shows for flight shows. Power Pole, total boat control. These brushes, we stay in our lane of experience so we can improve your experience. I'm not insane, I'm not bummed out. I got no one to blame, nothing to change, I got no evil to fight. One thing for sure, I'm all out of angst. Society don't bother me, and there's something wrong with that. I'm off to Pakistan, learn the lies of Islam. And fundamentalism, get that rock and roll. No cigarette, no drink, it's such a difficult to think about getting laid. Uh, welcome back, listeners, to a very special, very special um, edition of the Intermediate Line. We've got a guest on tonight. His name's John Bill- Billing from um, Mending Cast. And um, John, he-, he can hear what I'm saying, so I'm going to embarrass him straight up. He's um, he's an incredible human being. He's very generous uh, with his time, and I'm going to tell you why um, uh, through the through the process of this podcast. John, um, first of all, welcome to the um to the podcast mate thanks jeff appreciate the invitation yeah mate and anytime um we love we love helping out this i gotta i gotta apologize well um i say apologize to listeners but there mightn't be an apology it could be a celebration but chris isn't can't be with us tonight he's um he's uh he's got something on he's uh, i'll be honest with you mate he's he's gone down for a beauty sleep um, and he's been he's been down for two weeks, and he's not not going to wake up anytime soon. So. I'll say someone. I'm going to say someone will need to go and get him awake. I think. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's uh, he, he's up to something. But uh, so yeah, Chris, yeah, Chris, if you're out there, mate, come in, Chris. Um, <laughs> wake up. Yeah. So anyway, um, that aside. Um, Let's let's get cracking on on you, John. Um, so, John, you're based in Victoria. Let let's have the let's have the John Billing experience. Tell me about yourself, mate. Ah, oh, okay. What do I start? Um, I grew up in Tasmania, so I was born in a little um, town called Alveston, which is on the northeast coast of Tasmania. So I spent most of my formative years in uh, in Launceston, although I did spend a little bit of time on King Island um, yep. when I was younger. <laughs> So most of my uh, teenage years were spent in Launceston, growing up, going to school down there, um, doing things like playing sport and those sorts of things, and spent a lot of time running around with my dad, um, following him while he was fishing. Um, and, of course, yep. in Tasmania, for those who have been there, there's uh, ample opportunity to go and do that. So whenever most weekends we'd be off fishing or doing some some other sport activities. So, yeah. <clears throat> so from um, from uh, Alveston, you would, you would be drinking Bogues, is that right? Uh, yeah, there was a, there was always that uh, rivalry between north and south, and we were definitely bogus drinkers in the, in our teenage years growing up. So um, I never touched any of that cascade stuff. So. <laughs> what do we call bogus drinkers? Are you really bogusins, or is it just uh, bogans? What what's going uh, on? I think bogans fits pretty much. No, no disrespect <laughs> to anybody who drinks bogus, but I mean it's a good drop. But um, but the, the bogan name sort of sticks, doesn't it? 
<laughs> I'm never going to be welcome in Tasmania, mate. But yeah, continue. Sorry, you've followed your dad around. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, my family's still down there. Um, both my mum and dad are uh, in Tassie. My sister's still down there as well. Uh, well, like I said, I'm living now in in Melbourne in Reservoir with my partner. So um, moved over here when I was uh, in my early teens. My uh, stepbrother and, and myself at the time decided we we're going to go on a uh, adventure trip up to Queensland in his brand new HX panel van and uh, we arrived on the Able Tasman from Tassie in Melbourne and he promptly managed to fall in love with somebody at a local caravan park and so that was the end of our trip and I was stuck. So <laughs> from the, from there we sort of wondered well, how are we going to get some money together and sort of you know, keep ourselves alive and um, whilst we were living in Victoria and uh, so ended up getting a job and um, then got another job with the company I'm working at now and I've been there for the last 33 years. So it sort of uh, panned out well enough for me and I was actually the first of the two of us to get to Queensland at the end of it. So. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. Is, is, he, um, is he still with that person? Uh, no, unfortunately. But they, they did have a long uh, a marriage, but uh, um, they did end up divorcing after the kids moved out of home, which I guess is not too uh, uncommon thing to happen these days. But uh, yeah, right. Okay, that's unfortunate. Yeah, um, let's talk fishing, mate. Where um, tell us tell us about your um, your uh, your preferred forms of fishing. What you where you've been, what you've got up to. Sure. Uh, like I said, my, my formative years were spent uh, following my dad around whilst he was fly fishing all over Tasmania. That could be anywhere from the Macquarie down in the central. Central Plains up to the uh, the Central Highlands and Tassie. You spend a lot of time out in the Western Lakes for those who know the area well. Fishing places like Howes Lagoon, uh, Botsford and places like that. And I was, a lot of the time, uh, when I was what, 10, 11 or 12, I was on dog duty, uh, like most kids my age, because we had a German short-haired pointer at the time. His name was Fritz. Yeah. Um, as you would call your German, German yeah. short-haired one. <laughs> and um, so my job was to make sure that the dog didn't run off so that when Dad came back from fishing, we didn't have to wait for four hours for the dog to turn up before we could go home. So, um, And then slowly as uh, I sort of spent more time with, with Dad and watching him fish and things like that, I sort of got an interest in it. Yep. Um, and my first uh, fish on a fly rod was actually at a place called Lake K in the Western Lakes where, again, I was destined for dog duty uh, whilst my dad... And a mate of his walked over to some lagoons over the over the um, next horizon, and he left me with an old Shakespeare two-piece uh, fiberglass fly rod yep. with a red and black machuca stuck on the end of it, and said, "Oh, look! If you happen to see any fish moving in the shallows, just try and chuck one of those at it, and uh, you might have some luck." So, yeah. two or three hours later, um, the dad came back with his mate empty-handed, and um, I'd managed to. Uh, <laughs> To exactly as he said, put a black machuca in front of one of these fish that was tailing around in the shadows and yeah. managed to hook it and then promptly tune the whole thing out as quickly as I could to get it under the shore <laughs> and was uh, was very happy to show him the fish when he uh, when he arrived back empty-handed later on that night. So from that day, I was hooked on fly fishing and it's been my passion um, in a fishing sense ever since. Wow, that's that's an awesome story. That's so good. So black machucas are wet, right? Yes. Uh, wet weather. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And well, you throw that at fish that were um, chasing tadpoles or something. Uh, yeah, that would have been just just nosing around <laughs> in the shallows where they're looking for snails or tadpoles or something like that. And yeah, uh, I can't recall how good or bad my casting was at the time, but obviously I managed to get the fly in front of it, so the fish ended up taking it, and um, the rest is history, as they say. So. Well, that's awesome. That's awesome. That's the whole point of it. Yeah. And you were hooked from there. And um, so you've have you travelled much with fly fishing, John? 
Uh, a little bit, not not as much as I'd like to. I guess everybody would say that who's, who, um, yeah. who's a fishing nut like myself. But I mean, I fish from you know Queensland down, obviously down to Tasmania and all over Victoria and um, up to Northern Territory, fishing the territory a bit. Um, also in Western Australia, spent some time in New, in New Zealand as well. Fished over there a few times, but um, still on the bucket list to get to places like. Um, Christmas Island and uh, maybe Papua New Guinea and a few other places like that. Of course, to the states if I ever get there, as well as an opportunity. So, yeah. so they're on my bucket list. But yeah, fish fish quite a lot in uh, in and around Australia, and that's a mixture of fresh and salt water. So, um, what sort of uh, what sort of experiences stood out for you in Australia? Oh, uh, well, I got to say, fishing for barramundi in the territory is um, awesome fun. You know, sight fishing on the flats it's it's um, that's addictive. Um, especially, yeah. especially when you see big fish coming along and, and nosing up and taking your fly, and, and then sort of exploding on the surface. That's that surface take is um, is very addictive, as people all know. Um, and just and just again, the saltwater species, this the variety of fish that you can get, and just um, the unknown fishing to a lot of it. Because if you're fishing drains and colour changes and things like that, you're not really sure what's going to hit your fly <laughs> until until it happens and what uh, what le- leaps out of the water in front of you afterwards. But um, yeah, yeah, we've done a few mother trip mothership trips and things like that, which are which are amazing. Um, and just the just this the things you experience in nature in that sort of environment, you know, the crocodiles and the wildlife and yeah. Uh, uh, just getting out in nature, um, aside from the fishing itself, it's just an amazing place to be. So um. it is, isn't it? the The territory is is so unique. Um, uh, <clears throat> you know, I I can remember fishing um, Corroboree Lagoon for the first time. I've seen crocodiles before, but I've never seen this many crocodiles and this many crocodiles. And um, <laughs> and one popped up next to the pipe, stuck its head out maybe five meters away from it. It was truly stunning. And you know, you're looking into the eye of this sort of, you know, dinosaur, prehistoric lizard, for want of a better <laughs> word, and there's, there's nothing between you and it. Um, you know, I won't say I'd, I felt completely safe, but it's pretty, you know, it's a bit of a chilling moment. It's, the size of it is is just something, you know, astounding, and yeah, it's, it's just incredible you've got the opportunity to be that close to something like that. It's amazing. Well, there's luck with habit. You mentioned it, um, Crocs and Corroboree Billabong. I've got a bit of a story about an experience I had there. Actually, the first trip I went to Corroboree, I went with, with yeah. a guy called Graham Williams, who people, uh, yep. Territorians will know, is very well regarded um, guy with a guy a company called Inside Fly Fishing. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's a friend of my father's, and um, we're up there fishing on Corroboree for the first time. He took me out in his boat, which was then called the Black Arrow, which is uh, like a uh, 12 foot tinny i think it was and we're fishing around corroboree um and i'm just um up on the casting deck fishing for i think we're chasing toga or something or other at the time um anyway he said oh no i think we'll move on from this area and we'll go and find somewhere else so he's turned on the electric motor and i've just come off the casting deck and all of a sudden there's this bang something's just hit the electric motor and he thought gee what was that to run over a log or something and um, and so sort of, I stumbled off the casting deck into the into the gunnel of the boat and um, sort of looked around and didn't know what had happened. And then he sort of started up the electric motor again and then bang, something just hit it again. And he gave me this funny look. And then we looked over the side of the boat and we could see these two uh, two trails of bubbles, like side by side, uh, coming away from the from the stern of the boat, heading up to the heading up to the bow and off in front of us. Uh, and he gave, he gave me a dirty look and said, oh, I, I think we should move. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Anyway, so the, the bubble sort of turned around about 10 feet in front of us and started coming back towards the boat. And he said, no, no, it's time to move. So we, 
uh, jumped on the elect- on the um, outboard and we moved away. And um, he said to me later, he said that um, he knows that the, that that was a crock, and uh, the, if it had been somebody else who was less stable up on the casting deck, he'd be fear that they would have ended up in the water because he hit the he hit the motor that hard. And um, and because he knows the area, he knew the the crock. Uh, which croc it was that was living in that air, and he said it's a five metre croc that's well known, but it hasn't really been had a history of hitting boats before. So he um, he went and put a blog entry in the local Darwin um, Tales of the Tinny um, blog, I think it was, just to warn all the people that he'd had this experience. And I think Fisheries went in there later on and and dragged it out. So that was yeah my first experience with a um, <laughs> with a croc in, in croc rebuilding. So wow, it's a bit of an eye opener. Oh uh, yeah, well it's it's it scared the uh, scared the crap out of me to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Oh well. Um, well, that's the territory. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Um, yeah, man. So uh, I don't know where to go from that, but we talked about fly fishing goals and aspirations, and um, um, I guess that sort of comes down to <clears throat> to what you want to get out of fly fishing. I'm picking up with you that you like. You like travel. You like, you know, unique experiences. You like variations in, in target species and techniques. Um, Papua New Guinea sounds sounds like you know a lot of, uh, you know, you and I are probably on the same page. I'd love to go up there and give that a crack. Yep. <clears throat> would you do um, Would you do uh, the lake trip, or would you look rather do uh, riverine sort of um, bass fishing? Uh I'd probably do the late – well, I mean, the whole thing to do is probably chasing black bass and, and peacock bass and things like that if you can get to them. I know there's a, a friend of mine, Glenn Watt, who I know you've had on your podcast before yeah. from Barefoot, um, and is also there running angling adventures, has started opening up trips in there just recently. So I'll be you know, picking his brain about opportunities to, to get in there at some stage and yeah, and see what fun we can have. But, I mean, that, that, that's part of the attraction to fly fishing for me. Like I said, you're not stuck in, in one – in one location or one species or one technique there's there's a whole different ranges of um gear and kit and techniques and approaches that you can try and 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 also experience some fantastic um you know natural environments and like you know anywhere from the 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 mountains in in southern new zealand which everyone who's been there will just say it's just out of this world i mean to again the highlands in Tasmania, the central highlands in Tasmania, which are again a, a totally unique environment. Like I say, up to Darwin and the tropics and the mangroves and uh, and the flats and around Harvey Bay and places like that. I mean, there's just so many magical places to experience that this sort of fishing can take you. And and that for me is the um, the attraction to it. I mean, it's not just about catching fish for me. I mean, fly fishing is my my outlet. It's my de-stressor. It's uh, it's it's where I detox. So. Yeah, my partner often often say to me, "I haven't been haven't been fishing for three or four months." You'll see how uh, how wound up I can get, and she'll tell me to go off and, and go on a day's fishing just to um just to bring myself back down to back down to the level ground again. So yeah, it's it's my it's my catharsis. So yeah, that's why I do it. Yeah, well, it's um I'm gl- I'm glad you brought that that term to the table. Actually, catharsis and <clears throat> and healing. Um, it uh it's it's a it satisfies a primal urge for a lot of people, um, you know, and I don't know if it's the in- environment for me. Um, you know, I know it's a combination of the environment, the process, um, dare I say it, the, you know, the <clears throat> the people I spend it with, the, um, you know, the, the, you know, using using good tackle, stuff like that. It's, they're all constructs yeah. of, 
a satisfying day out. Um, and, you know, the outcome of that is I feel like I'm a better person for doing it. Um, yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, the challenge with any type of fishing, not just fly fishing, but any type of fishing, really, I mean, there's an intellectual aspect to it, like you say, the hunting and, and working out what approaches and what and what uh, lures or flies or bait or whatever is going to going to um, achieve a, a result in a particular environment. Uh, yeah. um, and that's to say, changing things up and experimenting and um, thinking outside the square and trying something different and then having the, the, the feedback of those successes when they come off, um, that sort of stuff is really, really rewarding too. So. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, I get, I get that, I get that. Um, and how do you feel about sharing these experiences? Like, um, can I ask you, children, for example? Or uh, yeah, I've got a daughter who's twenty nine, who's actually living in Bali at the moment with her partner. So they're uh, right. they're living over there. So she she hasn't got the fishing fishing bud. She uh, she's probably not the type of person who'd be interested in, in that type of thing. Although she does have an, a, a fascination for the outdoors, but. Uh, Yep. Um, but no, no, I've had uh, stepkids along the way again, but uh, again, they didn't really take off to fishing either. But I've got uh, nephews and cousins and things like that who are who are into it. Have spent some time with, so um, uh, so that's all all exciting. Yeah, yeah. I was just wondering, you know, how do you do you um, are you keen to share it? Um, you know, fly fishing as a gift with your family, or is is it sort of? Um, um, you know, with your with your nephews, for example, is that <laughs> yeah, is that shit sort of sailed a bit? Uh, no, like I said, I've, I've uh, approached them a couple of times. Um, I guess it's more about whether or not they've got time and interest enough to do it. I'm certainly happy to take people along and and yeah. teach them and, and expose them to the things that I know and and share with them the experiences that that, that I've had. Um, and I said taking the kids fishing quite a few times and camping and things like that. And it's, um, it's just something that hasn't really stuck with them as yet. But uh, again, for me, uh, it didn't really become a passion for me until later on in life. I mean, I say I picked it up when I was um, in my early teens and fished with my dad for a while whilst I was living with Tassie. But then when I moved over to Melbourne, mm. when I was 20, I think it was, um, I didn't really know anybody here who fly fished or where to fly fish or how to fly fish. And so it sort of fell by the wayside for a bit probably 15, 20 years even, yeah. until, until some mates of mine at, uh, at work um, actually got into it and picked it up and mentioned that they were interested in doing a fly fishing uh, trip. And so, yeah, I said, oh, yeah, happy to tag along and and um, and uh, help them out. And then from there, I just picked it, picked up the bug again. It was you know, 10 times worse than I've ever had it. So I was just I was just a manic fly fisher from then on So and have been ever since. So every opportunity I get to go fly fishing, I'll, I'll jump at it. So whether it's salt fresh, whatever. So, yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> so I guess we're sort of um, moving in here to to you know the the nuts and bolts of while you're on you know probably the guts of while you're on tonight. Um, you're part of a, an organisation called Mending Cast, and your mission is changing lives one cast at a time. Can you give us some? Um, can you give us a one hundred and one on on Mending Cast? Yeah, I'd love to. Like I say, um, so Mending Cast is a is a not for profit. Um, uh, organization that was started back in January 2019 um, and we run free live-in weekend fly fishing retreats for people dealing with cancer um, yep. and we have two programs that we run one's called casting for recovery which is for women who are uh, dealing with breast cancer and yep. then the male program that we run which is called real recovery um, which uh, was open to men with any type of cancer yeah. Um, and so we we started this organisation originally to run the um, casting for recovery program for the women, 
Uh-huh. Um, we actually ran the first ever of uh, the first um, retreat in Victoria back in Eildon in 2019. And then uh, after that, we picked up that um, there was an opportunity for us to do a, a men's program as well. And so we then uh, looked at doing the real reco- introducing the real recovery program, and we ran the first real recovery program in Australia um, back in May 2021. Oh wow! Yeah, right. Okay. So um, let's let's tick off casting for recovery first. Um, uh, well, more more to the point, is mending casts like a, um, an Australian um, only organisation, or is is it part of a, a larger international type movement? Um, so, so the organisation mending casts was started specifically in Australia. Like I said, we're run entirely by volunteers. Yep. Um, and so we all, we all some of them are retirees, some of them are uh, ambos, nurses, fly. Remember, all fly fishing nuts. Um, yep. And so it started originally uh, just to look at running the Casting for Recovery program in Victoria. Um, the, the Casting for Recovery program was originally started in America back in the early 90s by uh, a fly fishing guide and a breast cancer surgeon. Um, yeah. And so the program's been running over there for uh, ever since. And they've, I think we've reached nearly about 8,000 um, participants globally that this program's put through. Uh, the retreat program, so it's 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 a massive um, massive international exposure to it, um, and the original or the first ever casting for recovery retreat was actually run by the ACT fly fishers. Um, uh, I think it was about two thousand and fourteen, fifteen. I think right. so. They were the first organisation to run these retreats in Australia, and then we got the license from um, head office in the US to to run them in Victoria. So uh, many casts were started with the purpose of of doing that and then like i said when we wanted to expand into providing a men's program as well uh we looked to the states again and the real recovery program had been running in the america in america since um uh, uh, mid-1990 and so they're just about to i think they've just put through four thousand men through their programs um globally as well well wow. And so we got uh, agreement from them to run the real recovery program in Australia. And uh, like I said, we ran the first run retreat up at um, Omeo in May 2021. Wow, that's um, that that's pretty amazing. Um, so with the um, with the, the whole program, the to to as an outsider looking in, the, the genesis of it is incredible. You've got somebody, like you said, a um. You've got the you know breast breast cancer surgeon or doctor who you know recognise the healing power of of um, of fly fishing you know or or even just the you know the power of getting people out and about. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Can can you uh, expand upon that? Is is there some sort of documented? Um, you know, medical journal or recognition for the, for the power of of you know fishing in in healing and therapeutic sort of um, situations. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that one of the triggers for starting casting for recovery in the first place was just the the, the physical motion of casting a fly rod backwards and forwards was found to be beneficial in in dealing with um, 
um, scar tissue from mastectomies and lumpectomies and things like that. So in a physical sense, that's where the, the initial benefit was seen to be. But I mean, then there's the mental health side of it, which we as fly fishers all understand because that's an important part of, of what we get out of it. Yeah. And that was the connection they made through through the program. There's a significant um, you know, mental health well-being that these that, that these programs now offer to um, cancer patients, especially people who've never been fishing, even alone fly fishing before. Yeah. Um, and and the same with the men. I mean, the men's a little bit different because it's open to any type of cancer. So it's it, it it's not necessarily the, the motion of casting a fly rod that um, is is specific in that sense. But again, it's it's the fact that you're in a in an environment with people and sharing experiences amongst each other, and 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 you're out in nature in a pristine environment, um, learning a new skill and taking your mind off off your day to day troubles um, is is an extremely powerful um, healing activity. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> you know, you and I, you know, as fly fishermen, existing fly fishermen, this is this is not news to us, you know. But um, in a way, like even even you know the 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 tragedy of of cancer and the suffering of of that aside, the fact that you know fly fishing can have such a you know powerful healing effect is is such a um, is in itself a powerful um an argument to 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 participate in it and and more importantly to to spread it you know um as a um you know spread the word so to speak absolutely and that's the common thread that runs through both both programs i mean for those of us who've been fishing and fly fishing in particular that just the fact that you're out on out on the water in a, in a pristine outdoor environment learning a new skill you're in fresh air you've got nature all around you you've got somebody you know, a, a fishing buddy who partners you throughout the whole uh three-day uh fishing retreat so they're basically your fishing guide for the for the duration um, and they're there to help you instruct you and, and, and teach you how to uh, some of the basics of fishing and hopefully uh, help you catch a fish. Yeah. Um, but that, that instant, you know, when you when the fly's on the water and you're focusing on the fly running down a, a seam or running through a riffle and there's nothing else that you're focused on. So all your external uh, noise, clatter, uh, mm. mental strain, all the problems at home, financial issues, all that sort of stuff disappears into the background. And for that, you know, for that one moment, they're truly free of all that burden. Um, yeah. And that's and that's the essence of, of what the fishing side of it brings to them. And then there's the social side of it as well, which is the fact that, you know, they're sharing their experiences with other people who have been through similar experiences. Um, and it's not a truly, uh, I guess, a clinical um, support environment like they, te- that they usually get in a, in a hospital or in a cancer, um, a cancer ward. Um, yes, you know, I know. And that's, that's one of the things that a lot of the participants have said that they find is truly, um, truly amazing about the way we, we structure these programs is that, you know, that these conversations happen organically between all the participants. And it's like I say, it's in an environment where they don't feel like they're being, they're being judged or they're being assessed or evaluated. Um, it's just everybody's on an even playing field. They all share their experiences. Um, and they all bond and become lifelong friends at the end of the three-day retreat. And it really is a remarkable thing to see from the people, from the point of view of us who are facilitating these these yep. programs. So reducing the head noise for a lot of these too is, you know, particularly at, at different stages of, of um, people's cancer journey. Like uh, I, I, this is completely unscripted. I, I, one of my um, one of the dads from school, um, a kid's school, he just got um, the other day he had a abnormality in his um, 
in his testicle. And um, long story short, um, he uh, within within a week it had it removed, um, and it was it was um, as cancerous. And his um, just talking to him, you know, the the level of head noise, things that were going through his head, um, the worry, the stress, um, the anxiety, yeah, all of that. Um, he said, you know, talking to people was was one of the best um, reducers of that, and you know, being by himself was one of the the biggest magnifying agents for him. You know, and this was this was only after a week or so of of having um, that diagnosis. Um, so, you know, I I really take on board what you're saying about all these different aspects of of the the healing power of it um and, and that, yeah. that, that that actually is a, is a poignant point because as you <laughs> probably appreciate you know we men have trouble opening up and talking about our feelings and emotions and fears <laughs> um especially with, with other men and you know admitting weakness and and vulnerability and 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 um mortality and things like that i mean those are things that we we, we you know we never normally open up to but um so that in itself is one of the um the cathartic aspects of the program is that these men get to sit around and we actually have structured conversations for them which we call courageous conversations which well, happen happen at specific stages during the during the three-day retreat where we get all the men together and we ask them a, a number of set questions that are designed to um, firstly get them to open up and talk to each other and share their experiences about the type of cancer that they've got and yep. their diagnosis prognosis experiences all that sort of stuff but then they delve into some deeper you know more challenging emotional stuff about what it means to them uh, what impact it's had on them and their families, you know, those sorts of things. I and mean, then once you get down to the stuff that's got real meaning to it, the the bonding that happens between the guys is, is just amazing. And then they become lifelong lifelong friends afterwards. Um, women, the program is a little bit different because women, you know, by nature, are more um, gregarious and happy to talk about things um, between themselves. So they the, their dynamics are a little bit different because they tend to actually facilitate the discussions themselves. So it's more about putting them yeah. in an environment when they can... Uh, collectively have those connections with each other and then they'll just talk about things um, uh, off, off their own bat. So oh, yeah. the, structure, the structure of the two programs is a little bit different, um, yep. but, the out, but the outcomes are very much the same. So uh, just rewinding a bit, um, does each program go for three days? Yeah, so um, so the Casting for Recovery program, we, again, it's a three-day fishing retreat, so we normally run it Friday to Sunday on over a weekend. Yeah. So the Bunda, just a quick run through the itinerary. So Friday night, we'd, we'd um, assemble at the venue wherever we're, um, we're staying. Um, normally, we'd do an opening um, address to everybody, and then we start with some fly tying and a little bit of background about um, about fly fishing and, and how and why um, we do it. And so then we start uh, a fly tying session with the buddies, um, or they'll sit down with their, each of their participants and take them through tying some basic flies, which hopefully then they get to use when they're fishing in the next couple of days afterwards. Mm -hmm. We have dinner, um, and then the next day uh, for the women, we'll be out um, doing some fishing. Uh, we, just, we do some casting instruction first. So we have some um, FFI casting instructors who are actually members of many casts, um, mm -hmm. of, which, of which I happen to be one as well. Yep. Um, who will take them through some basic casting instruction, teach them how to cast a fly, um, and then we take them out on the water and, and give them an opportunity to catch some fish. Um, and back again on the Saturday night, um, they'll have some collective discussion time after dinner. And then the same happens on the Sunday morning. 
uh, we'll go out and do some fishing again, and then we'll have a closing ceremony on the on the Sunday afternoon. So everybody's basically heading home by five o'clock on the Sunday. Yeah. Um, and the men's program is similar. Uh, like I said, basically Friday to Saturday uh, where we can, although we have run a couple of retreats of late uh, Monday to Wednesday just because of the problems with COVID and cost of the accommodation and things like that. So um, in the men's program, again, we start on a... Uh, on the Friday evening, um, we'll have an opening ceremony. Uh, we have something a little bit different in the men, which is called a vesting ceremony, where the men get to wear um, fly fishing vests that have been signed uh, by the participants that have been through the programs before them. Oh, wow. Uh, and it's a way of creating a connection between the people, the past uh, people, the present people through the program, and then those who are coming in the future. So they get to wear these vests, which have got you know well wishes and comments from all the people who have been through the program before them. Uh, for the three days that they're at the retreat. So we present them with their vests on the on the Friday night. We'll then have a dinner and a fly tying session afterwards. We'll have our first of our courageous, uh, courageous uh, conversations with the men that night. Yep. Then uh, Saturday, Saturday morning, we uh, then do the fly casting and, and fishing instruction on the morning. Then we'll go off to a fishing venue. We'll have another um, courageous conversation. We'll have some lunch, and then the guys are off fishing for the afternoon. Yeah. Come back that night. We'll have another courageous conversation when they come back off the water. Um, then have dinner, then retire for the night, and then the Sunday um, we'll have another courageous conversation on the Sunday, which is like our what we call closing the circle, which is where we all get together and um, including the participants, the buddies that have been with them and uh, some of our staff as well and we basically um, uh, bring the formal part of the program to a conclusion um, and at the stage they'll be handing back their vests, signing them and writing some comments on them when they hand their vests vest back. Yep. Uh, and again that program and then we'll finish that probably about four o'clock on the, on the Sunday afternoon. So. Wow. Well that's amazing. I'm sort of um, I'm picturing people who have never potentially never fly fished or never even fished before is that is that what happens you're, you're taking these people from from ground zero to to catching fish in a weekend yeah mostly uh we've had a very uh with the real recovery program we've had a um some fabulous support from peter mack mm. uh, in fact they've actually sponsored the last two um, retreats that we've run um, through association with the Peter Mac uh, Men's Shed program, so they've been actually been referring a lot of their own participants, our own patients, to us yep. uh, through their own um, cancer centre support. Um, and so again, a lot of people who come from that background have never have never fly fished before, or not fish before, um, and and that's probably a good thing because they come at it from a totally um, uh, neutral position, so they don't really know what to expect or, or, or what what's the outcome or or are predisposed to how difficult it is or not difficult it is and so on. So, And because we just step them through the process, like the whole three-day program is all structured, so they don't have to think about anything. They basically just get led from one event to the next to the next. Um, and we take them through the whole experience. And by the end of it, hopefully they get to catch um, catch some fish on a fly rod. In fact, the last men's retreat that we just finished um, in November, which was up at Ballarat, so we fished um, Lake Wendaree with the help of the Ballarat fly fishers, Mm -hmm. um, up there, and also we spent some time on Millbrook Lakes because uh, we got some uh, a days uh, fishing on Millbrook Lakes donated to us by um, by Mark Weigel, which is fantastic support yeah. from them too. So yeah, that's a really generous and great gift from Mark. 
Absolutely, yeah. and and the guys had a ball, and they uh, a lot of them caught fish. And I actually got a text from one of them earlier this week to say that um, they'd all been out. Uh, there'd been four or five of them have been out since to one of the local lakes down near Seaford, and uh, been fly fishing, <laughs> fly fishing again by themselves. So it's great to see that they've um, carried oh, that that's... experience, carried that experience forward. And like I say, are, do, are doing it as a group, not just not just individually. So that's that's a fantastic endorsement for what they're doing. Well, that sort of ran into my next question, mate. I was just going to say, what sort of outcomes do you see? Like, um, you know, obviously these guys, I and mean, that would have been so tough, you know, and gratifying to see guys who had taken from, from you know, ground zero to to catching a fish or, or you know, enjoying the process, enjoying that, wanting to do it enough uh, enough to, to go out and do it again. I mean, obviously they went and purchased gear and got into it, right? Absolutely, and I mean, but the fly fishing, to be honest, is is a secondary part of it. I mean, it's, it's the vehicle yep. uh, by which uh, we deliver these programs. But the real achievement is is the is the friendship and the camaraderie that the participants develop amongst themselves, which is which is a lifelong thing. I mean, I know that uh, even on the women's side of things, there's been participants through that program that have taken up fly fishing, um, um, and our and our fly fishers now after the retreat. Um, and they all get together and, and uh, catch up regularly from time to time. Same on the men's side of it. We've got alumni uh, who catch up and meet regularly from the men's side of it as well. Um, yeah. And to be fair, I mean, it's not all happy endings. There are, unfortunately, the nature of what we're dealing with is that some people um, have actually passed away who have since been through our our programs. Um, so that's um, why well, it's unfortunate and, and a sad part of what we're experiencing, that the uplifting part of that is that, we get feedback from their friends and family um, congratulating us and thanking us wholeheartedly for giving them the opportunity to you know, go fishing one last time or, or to spend some time in nature and, and and that they were so happy that they got that opportunity before they passed. And so that, that sort of thing is, is really, really amazing for us to experience that sort of feedback from their loved ones. Okay, so here's, here's a curly question. <clears throat> um, What's the recruitment process like? Like how, you know, you mentioned the men's shed um, is, you know, a major sort of, um, or the Peter Mac organisation was, you know, had a referral thing. But, you know, how how will people, you know, cancer sufferers, male or female, become aware of mending cuss? Okay, so again, uh, aside from Peter Mac um, and places like that, we're also on the Cancer Council Victoria's um, referral um, support pages so there's links there that people can find us through if they're coming from the cancer uh, cancer treatment side of things um we have spent a lot of time um out and about talking to local fly clubs and had some fantastic support from some of the local fly clubs around around victoria mm -hmm. um and we've had referrals from from them and friends and even buddies who have volunteered from the fly clubs to come along and, and um, support our program as volunteers in being fishing buddies with the participants so um that's been a fantastic source of um, not only participants but also uh, buddies and support and volunteers and fundraising and all that, that that's been done on our behalf as well. Um, and the process really is we have a, a waiting list um, that involves participants that are coming from the Peter Max side of things and also people from coming from any other um, any other opportunity where they get to hear from us whether it's on our social media pages because we're on facebook and instagram and linkedin as well we've also yeah. got a web website called mendingcast.org um, which i encourage people if they want to to get on there and have a look at the information yeah. about the programs that we run um how they can get in contact with us um who we are what we do basically 
Yeah. So through all those referral streams, we've got a, a basically a waiting list for both the men's and the women's retreat. And um, when the next one is fully funded, we then find a venue, hopefully involving a local fly fishing club at the same time, because we'd like to try and keep the programs running around in, in regional areas in Victoria where we can involve local communities and local fly fishing clubs as volunteers, mm. um, which is a bit of a challenge because you know, the type of venue we've got to find is, is pretty unique because we've got participants are not necessarily um, fully healthy. They'll have compromised immune systems and their own challenges that we need to be able to cater for. And so the accommodation needs to be um, um, pretty, not that market, but it needs to be um, suitable for somebody who can, can basically stay in a room on their own and, and be safe and not trip over the bath and all that sort of stuff. And But yeah. then have enough to cater for um, you know, our members and the volunteers and all that that we're, we're putting up as well. Sure. Um, and then and then have it be close to a fishing venue um, in terms of being having access to water that we can that we can fish. So um, so the the logistics are a little bit challenging in trying to find places where we can host the, these events. But we are looking at um, like I said some other areas around regional Victoria. We've run the real recovery retreat now in Omeo with the Bensdale fly fishers. Um, again, uh, we ran it um, in Marysville. Um, with some some local people around Marysville, and like I said, the last one we ran last November was up at Ballarat with the Ballarat Flyfishers, and the women's one we ran first one was up in Eildon with some support from local people from the Alexandria area, and um, again the uh, one after that was at Ballarat again with the help from Ballarat Flyfishers, and the next women's retreats going to be run at the end of March uh, this year up at Marysville again. So, sure, sure. I mean, is that um. <clears throat> this is a, I'm going to throw my hand up here and say ignorant Queenslander. Are these um, I know Millbrook and Wendoree were were lake venues. Is there any sort of streams that are friendly to to um, you know the you know the more more capable patients or? Yeah, to, to be honest, I think we prefer to try and uh, run them in a streamside environment, only because I think the the experience with somebody fish fly fishing in a stream is a little bit different to still water um although the still water can be actually more um more profitable in terms of catching fish because yep. um you know, if you've got if you're in a stock fishery and things like that then you're more likely to be able to catch catch fish in those environments but i think the experience in a in a, in a stream environment is is more akin to um how to the best outcome for the participants so, yep. so the, the the fishing we did at omeo uh, again that was that was um stream side the fishing we've done at marysville was on um on the side of the goulburn river um so th those are the types of locations that we we would prefer to use but um but then again if, if like i said with millbrook i mean the fishing there was fantastic and yep. everyone there had a, had a great time and they caught uh, some really good decent fish so you know it just depends mm. on the nature of the nature of the fishery uh, how accessible it is, um, and I guess um, what the fishing happens to be like at the time that you're there. So, I I've done a, f a fair bit of trout fishing lake and and stream. And what's what sticks with me the most is the stream fishing. You know, like um, you know when you talk about levels of catharsis, um, <clears throat> it would be patronising of me to use that word because you know I'm not. <clears throat> You know, at the moment I don't have cancer and I'm not healing from anything, but I do find the the streams more engaging and I do find them, um, you know, more um, engrossing and peaceful, um, you know, as an environment, um, you know, whether I'm 
catching fish or not. And that could be, you know, a trout stream, a jungle perch stream, or, you know, sooty grunter stream, whatever, you know. Yeah. About, um, there's something about a stream. It's, um, it you know, it's very nature. It, you know, each, each of them's unique. Every pool's unique. Um, and it's quite, um, yeah, it, it's, it's an amazing experience, um, you know. And uh, if, yeah, if you could get, if you could get the access for, for those type of patients, I could see why you prefer to do that. Yeah, and I said even even just the sound of running water. I mean, a lot yeah. of the, a lot of participants, you know, they they're not in the phys- physically in the best condition, so they'll tire easily, and so they they can't necessarily stand for the two or three hours um, at a stretch. So they may want to sit down after half an hour, and and so we'll just sit down beside them on uh, on a stream and just sit there and talk and listen to the running water, and and that in itself. Um, has an amazing healing effect on them um, and just sharing those experiences with their buddies and, and talking about whatever they want to talk about. So it's not necessarily um, akin to fishing per se. It's Like you say, it's more about the experience and the whole um, natural environment and being out with somebody who you can, who can share that with and, and, and talk to if you need to. So, so John, here's a question. Does this <clears> – does <throat> the does the quality or the, the depth of – of conversation in these courageous conversations or courageous questions, does that improve after the fishing? Like the each session, do, do people get further and further into it as they build, you know, empathy and trust with the facilitators and the other other participants? Yeah, well, like I say, when we have a, a, a facilitator who takes these, uh, who actually walks people through these um, these courageous conversations, so um, and so part of that is is to guide them through the the exercise of, you know, gelling in a group dynamic and, and um, giving everybody their, their space to speak um, and can say whatever they want, whenever they want, uh, however they want. There's, there's, there's no rule to it. Yep. Um, and, we, and we try to actually, although in group dynamics, you, you, you think you try to encourage crosstalk and, and, and collective discussions, but we actually try to discourage that and just give everybody their own individual space as we're going around the circle one by one to say what they want. I mean, and they're happy to, if somebody doesn't have anything to say or they're uncomfortable, they can pass and we can come back to them afterwards. So there's plenty of opportunity for people to to not only say their own piece, but to hear what everybody else is saying and then offer their own, um, own experiences back to those people as part of the group dynamic. And that, and that we find it's a really, really powerful way that, um, that people collectively bond very quickly so even after the first or second um conversations that we're having um you'll find that the guys and the women will be off in in little groups and huddles themselves and they'll be talking amongst themselves and sharing their own experiences and that and that's really what the essence of it is all about is facilitating that environment for those discussions to take place and that and that collective bonding to take place it's not about you know us or our members or or our volunteers you know um, engendering that or, or forcing that on or forcing them into a situation where they have to talk it happens organically like then people just gather and and automatically they know that they're sharing they have shared experiences and shared challenges and and by nature they'll be drawn to each other and 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 um, and gel and discuss those situations amongst themselves and it's a really amazing thing to see happen when like i said you're facilitating these these activities amongst these people so john what makes a good facilitator uh well the one we have is pretty good um his, his, his name is eric smith for those who, uh, who may know of him um i think it's being uh, empathetic uh, yep. and also being respectful 
but also being firm. I mean, the, the difficult thing sometimes is to keep people on topic and keep people, um, I guess, within a certain timeline because we do have a set time for these discussions to take place and so we have to give everybody an equal opportunity to speak. Um, so that's probably the, the most challenging part of it is, is keeping everybody on topic and keeping and giving everybody equal opportunity to have this day. But yeah, and how is how is a good facilitator either developed or recruited? Uh, well, fortunate with Eric that uh, he came along because uh, he was a fly fishing uh, person as well. He came he came came to us from a nursing background actually. Mm. Um, and so uh, he originally jumped on as a volunteer and agreed to be our first facilitator for the real recovery um, retreat for the men. On the women's yep. side, we've got a, uh, a doctor whose name is Renee um, Fluger, yep. and she's uh, been with us since the first um, casting for recovery recovery as well. And so she comes from a medical background, but she's also involved in um, in social support and running support groups through her, uh, her medical medical background. Yeah. Um, so she's, she's been fantastic in terms of um, facilitating the women's discussions at, um, at the retreats as well. So we were very fortunate to have some pretty special people in those roles. So. Right, right. Well, that, that is fortunate because, you know, these type of um, guild and, and – um, uh, you know, em empathetic uh, facilitators. Uh, they're developed over time, you know, they just don't grow on trees. Um, so, you know, it's, and it's it's probably, I don't want to say it's, it's it'd be a tough but, you know, rewarding task. Um, um, yeah, and you mentioned some of your, your, um, your participants are palliative too, right? Absolutely, and then that's part of the challenge for us as volunteers to understand that um, you know, there's not necessarily a rosy outcome for everybody that's that's coming along and our job is to try and give them the best experience that we can for the time that they're there and part of that challenge is, is not not desensitizing de yourself from it because you can't help but be involved and engaged with, mm. these, with these people when you're sitting and having these discussions with them um, but it's always sort of kept at an arm's at an arm's length because the whole purpose is is the participants themselves to bond with each other and share those experiences those deep experiences with each other not with the mending cast people yeah um so our our real um i guess skill is providing the the framework and the structure for those discussions to happen organically and then yeah. let them let them develop in however they however they choose to develop in the relationships among the participants develop amongst themselves so yeah uh, but like you say i mean the, the challenges for us where we do um, form relationships with these people, and unfortunately, some of them some of them pass um, after they've they've finished the retreats. I think we've had three three of our uh, real recovery people have passed um, since they've been through our retreats. Mm. Um, I don't know I don't know any of the, the, the women yet who've who've um, who passed, which is fortunate. But um, yeah, I'd say it's it's just a, a reality of the the space that we're dealing in and the type of challenges that we're um, we're trying to support. So yeah, yeah. Look at It'd be um, it would be so tough, you know, dealing dealing with that. Um, and like you said, it'd be hard not to take it, take that on board, you know. Yeah, but that's, that's it. But that's it. It's, it's not all negative, and, and certainly I don't want to paint it like you know, you know, we're all yeah. sort of running around in doom and gloom and and yep. uh, down and downtrodden. And in fact, it's totally the opposite. I mean, everybody's upbeat. Um, now we're all we're all really enthused by the feedback and the. Um, involvement that the participants have in the program and the fact that they we know that these things work the program works um 
the stages that we take them through. You see, you see them you know, enjoy tying their first fly, um, you know, catching their first fish, and then bonding with each other and making friends with the other participants, which which will be lifelong friends for them. So that in itself is is infinitely more rewarding than any of the negatives that come out that we have to deal with. Yeah. And that's that's why we keep doing it because you know, we get out of it ten times you know, what we put into it. Well, that, that sort of leads me on to my next question for you. Why, why do you do it? Like, what what's, what level of satisfaction does this bring you? Uh, there's a whole whole um, gamut of reasons, I guess. I mean, one of it in a personal sense. I mean, fortunately, I haven't had any, any personal experience with cancer myself, um, although my uncle did pass away from melanoma when he was in his early 40s, and I was only probably 12 or 13 at the time, and that had a pretty profound impact on me to see somebody who I thought was you know, young and strong and an idol of mine uh, at the time um, basically wither away and die within six months of um, being diagnosed. So yeah. um, so, so there is that, that little bit of a personal aspect to it. And I'd like to say everybody, I guess now, because cancer is such an insidious disease, we're all been touched by it in some way, shape or form. We all know friends or relatives or or loved ones or that have been affected by it or passed away from it. So I yeah. mean, it, it, it is a, a thing that connects all of us in some way, shape or form. But I think the biggest thing for me is just passing on, like I said, the experience that I've learned from fly fishing and the, and the benefit that I get out of it in a cathartic sense and that release and that um, freedom that it provides and sharing that with other people who are going through some pretty horrible, horrendous experiences and the fact that they can use the fly fishing experience is a way of relieving themselves, even just temporarily, from those mm-hmm. from those burdens and those challenges is, is such a rewarding thing for me. That's that's really the essence that I get out of it. And the part and we get to share that with a really good bunch of people um, in the Mending Cast organisation and, and the people that volunteer with us. I mean, the the, the contribution and the efforts that the, the those members and particip- uh, those volunteers go through is just is just amazing. They're a fantastic bunch of people. It looks sounds it sounds like you're very proud of of your organization mate the people who are participating and um you know i'm so impressed with with um you know with the selflessness of of the situation you know i'm i'm projecting my own insecurities here when i say this um you know i'd i'd find it you know really challenging that potentially you could could help someone and you know that they could pass you know and that that's for me to get over that's not a problem you know, so soon. I guess we're, uh, another way to rationalise it, we're all sort of on a one-way ticket anyway. Um, you know, but it's it's just sort of I mean, it's so admirable that you guys um, give up your time, particularly you know if if you're um, if you're um, you know com- you've got competing um, things for your time. You know, you've got kids, kids sport. You know, which I sort of elevate above. Um, you know, the time I have to fly fishing, but as as I um, as I grow and mature, um, I realise that um, you know I get I get more more and more increasing amounts of joy out of helping people. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's one of the, one of the challenges. Like you say, when you when you're young and 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 single and and got your whole life ahead of you, you tend to become quite selfish and introspective, I guess, in a way. And, and yeah. it's not till you have kids have kids and have responsibilities and and you start thinking about people other than yourselves that you realise there's a bigger world and and vaster experiences to um, to go through and that some of those are immensely rewarding and um, and that um, and this is a case in point for us. I mean, the, these these retreats and the experiences that we share with these people are immensely rewarding on on both sides of the fence. Yeah, 
So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's probably a, that's a good way to look at it. The, sometimes a gift is in the giving, and um, you know that if if you're building a, you know, you want to build a humanitarian legacy. This is this is yeah. a great opportunity. You know, it's. <laughs> And as, as you know, I mean, so so much of our Western lives these days is 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 run on a transactional basis. It's not like I give you something and you give me something in return. And it's just nice to be able to give something and and not expect something back. And just say giving for giving sake, and and the fact that that's then a shared experience that, that you know is having a positive effect on somebody else, and you're not expecting anything else in return. And, and it really is a liberating experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you mentioned. You know the duration of these these courses. You've, you've run. You've what run? Is it three? Yep, um, three for the men and, and and two for the women. But the third one's coming up um, in March. So. Yeah, and you know, obviously, there's the time that it takes, which is three days. But there's also count. Like, I guess it's like the tip of an iceberg. <laughs> three day, a three day retreat probably takes you know a lot lot longer to to um, to prepare for. Is uh, would that be a fair comment? Oh, absolutely. I mean, to be fair, now we've run a few of those retreats. Obviously, we're refining the process and we're understanding uh, better how and where these things uh, can or how how they run and where things can go wrong and how we deal with them, things like that. I mean, obviously, the first two retreats took us a long time to get off the ground because we had to do a lot of the um, the, the groundwork in terms of developing um um, yeah, document, documents and paperwork and uh, an itinerary and finding yeah. venues and and yeah. working out working out timelines for the itinerary and making sure that they run smoothly and that we can get people where we need to get them by the time we need to get them there and all the logistics and things like that that go into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but now that we've, like I say, that we've run three or four of these um, in both cases, we're sort of now becoming a little bit more more settled in how we approach them and a bit more confident in, in how we're doing it, which is great. Um, and then, so we're looking at you know, future opportunities for running other retreats. We've had some discussions about the potential of running a retreat down in Tasmania. So uh, yeah. we'll be looking at uh, opportunities there in the in the coming twelve months of what 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 and where we may be able to run a retreat there, and uh, some other opportunities may open up um, also in Victoria for other venues. So we're always and again because we're self-funded, um, we can only really run. The number of retreats that we do, provided we get the funding underneath us to uh, to do it. So, yeah, well, well, we'll circle back on funding towards the end. But just wanted a, f- a few more questions about the mechanics. Is there is there much red tape involved in in setting you know one of these weekends up or even the organisation? Uh, quite a bit in terms of logistics. As you appreciate the, the the nature of the people that we're dealing with, so they have compromised immune systems and things like that. So mm-hmm. we're pretty uh, we're pretty cautious about making sure that we um, provide a safe environment for them. So we have COVID safe plans and things like that, which we which we stick to. Um, all the participants have to have a medical waiver signed by their uh, GP practitioner, oncologist, or so forth, to say that they're medically fit for the retreat. Yeah. Um, so that's a, that's a prerequisite because we need to be be um, confident that from a medical point of view that they're able to go through the three days without any adverse reactions or consequences. Sure. Um, we ask them to sign um, you know, waivers and agreements and all that sort of stuff, which protect them and us against any adverse outcomes um, as well. Um, and so there's a fair bit of uh, oh, also making sure we've got contacts, the emergency contacts and things like that on file. So if, this, um, God forbid, something does happen, 
um, we're in a position to ex exercise some of our um, contingency plans in terms of getting hold of loved ones and relatives and so forth and um, get, getting them to uh, a medical facility or getting them back home or so forth as, as the need arises. So there's a lot of that sort of background work that happens even before the retreat kicks off. Yeah. Um, and then through running through the retreat, um, again, that, most of that now is, is um, pretty much runs to scripts as far as the itinerary goes because... Like I said, we've had a few um, attempts at getting it, uh, getting it right, and so they tend to run pretty well. Yeah, I can't imagine um, the logistics behind that all. You know, but even you know when you're thinking about, you, you spoke earlier uh, regarding the um, location selection. Um, you know, I imagine that would be highly individualistic, depending on you know the accessibility of the the person, or even the water level of the stream or lake at that particular time. You know, it can all change just like that. Yeah, that's right. And then, and part of what we do is we, we provide all their fishing gear as well. So we've got a stock of fly rods and reels and all that that have been donated to us. Um, waders, uh, flies. I mean, we had flies from all over the place. I mean, people like Dave Little and um, uh, who else? Brett Bowman and people like that who I know have been on your podcast previously have been um, yep. fantastic in donating flies, tying flies to us and things like that as have a lot of other people in donating gear and equipment and vests and all this sort of stuff. So um, so we have to cart all that stuff around and, and, and move it from, from place to place um, as the need arises. So that in itself has a little bit of a logistic challenge, logistical challenge to it, apart from the fact that we have to move the participants around from place to place too. So, um, yeah. so that's why I say the venue and the fishing locations and the, and the um, association or the proximity of those is, is pretty important in terms that we don't, waste too much time you know in transit between fishing venues and accommodation and that sort of thing so because we want to try to maximize the amount of time that the, the participants have with each other and also that they have on the water so yeah well that's that's a great idea is there um do you get much industry support you know you mentioned a, a few people like you know dave little um uh you know brent um uh, you know a few other people have made donations i think chris donated something at some point too yes yes that's right yeah. um, um yeah no we've had some fantastic fantastic support from people i mean like cole jones you've been on there has uh, been helping us out james norney is now a member of mending cars so he's yep. he's fly. helping us out for mountain fly um yeah. like i said dave, dave, dave little's been tying flies for us brett bowman uh jimmy laverty from florida see another one of your past yep. um podcast guys has donated trips to us in the past um renee vass from manic tackle has been a supporter of us as well josh Hush josh hutchkins has been supporting us um ash dunsmore from half and reels again another one of your past yep. um, podcast guys has donated um fly reels to us so we've had some fantastic support from within the fly fishing industry um, all over australia not just in victoria and, and i guess as our name and our reputation starts to grow and our exposure starts to grow it's 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 just becoming um, stronger and stronger that level of support, which is which is just fantastic because I think people within the fly fishing community, you know, get it. They understand um, what it is that we're doing and why it works. So, yeah. and that's now starting to spill over into into um, like I say, um, exposure outside of the fly fishing environment. And that's really where we need to target because that's where our participants are coming from. They're not they're not the converted people who've been fly fishers and understand the benefits of fly fishing. It's the people who've never been fly fishing before that we're trying to target and bring them into the sport and hopefully. Um, if their cancer journey is a positive one, that they stay in the sport and they use it as a as a positive tool for them for the rest of their lives. So. Yeah, well, absolutely, and it's it's probably an example of um, of 
you know, real growth within the organize, uh, within the industry, I should say, not the organisation, you know, in, in terms of you're bringing new people in, you're exposing them, you're, you're getting them engaged, you're, you, you know, from a from a purely business point of view, you're um you you know you're putting bums in waders and and you know hands on rods and uh, yeah yeah yeah. Um, Although from a business model, it's not really one that that, that benefits us because the uh, the participants' involvement with us is really transient because you know they're only a participant. We only allow, generally allow people to be a participant once because if there's a waiting list, we obviously mm-hmm. want to make sure that everyone has an equal opportunity to to become involved. Yeah. So they have one, they have one trip through the program and then come out the other side of it and then um, uh, you know, continue on their own fly fishing journey. And we have you know alumni events and things like that and catch ups with people to stay in yeah. contact with them. But um, but their involvement with us you know becomes indirect in that sense rather than direct. And so um, then they go off and they buy buy the fly fishing gear and buy the fly fishing licenses or buy the fishing licenses and that sort of thing and. And become contributors in that sense, and you know we've had some support through fishery for um, Victorian fisheries that provided grants money to us and things like that, which has been great support as well because they recognise the connection in terms of bringing people into the into the um, recreational fisheries licensing program and that sort of thing. So, yeah, yeah, well, you know, there's a lot there's a lot to be said for participation, you know, and Victoria has a really progressive um, uh, licensing system and you know a um, a great um uh you know outlook towards in terms of you know how they view the fishery as a resource to be used um you know in in a lot of ways it's uh it's very progressive and um you know i i guess uh, you know there's a there's a lot to be learned there and i you know i'm, I'm going to stop there because i've got friends in queensland fisheries um <laughs> <laughs> I want to keep no, friends. You, you um, don't want to burn too many bridges. Well, it's, it's, it starts to sound like a comparative, <laughs> comparative comment rather than just you know, well done, Victoria Fisheries. You know, which is which is all I want to say. Well done. Um, well, let me add, there's some fantastic fishing up in Queensland. <laughs> it's pretty good. Yeah, it can be. It could be better. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah, it, it's it's really good. I um. I was going to leave this for the end, but I mean, we've sort of touched on it. It's unavoidable to go there now. Um, um, how is how are you guys funded? Like, um, how's mending costs? You know, you, you touched on a few donations there, and, and obviously material support on on flies and tackle. But you know, clearly at some point you're going to need uh, funds, right? Absolutely, absolutely, and and yeah. like I said, we're we're a non-profit organisation and solely by volunteers. So I mean, every we rely on uh, sponsorship, donations, grants, uh, basically people giving us money to be able to um, subsidise our retreats. So like I said, fortunately we've had some involvement through Peter Mac, and sponsorship from them's uh, contributed to running uh, a couple of the real recovery retreats that we've done. Yeah, which is which has been fantastic. Um, like I said, we've had some grants from Vic Fisheries, um, but most of it is through uh, our own fundraising initiatives. Um, we've actually got an online auction running um, at the moment for what you call the Twelve Days of Fishmas um, auction, which is one of our major annual fundraisers. Oh, nice! Um, which is an online auction um, for with a whole heap of I think it's about twenty or twenty five um, items donated to us from different sponsors. 
yeah. uh, that we're auctioning, uh, we're auctioning off in the uh, in the online auction. So that's a major annual fundraiser for us. And we have a, 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 a trivia nights and other fundraising events that we run. Um, like I said, the, some of the fly fishing clubs have been fantastic in the in the support that they've given us. They run their own um, fundraising events for us and donate donate money to us. Um, so you know, we really are um, basically funded by um, the money that people contribute don- donate to us. So um, part of the way forward for us from that is we're actually looking at um, getting official charity um, status recognition and, and DGR deductible gift registration with the ATO. We're actually going yeah. through that process. Pro- actually going through that process at the moment. Yeah, uh, and hopefully at the end of that we'll get uh, proper charity status accreditation and DGR um, status with the ATO, which means we can open up um, other funding streams through um, through corporates or uh, grants and things like that. That um, hopefully we'll be able to shore us up in terms of financial stability moving forward, which then means we can lock in um, venues and um, retreat dates and things like that sort of three, four, five years out, which will, again, give us more certainty moving forward and and give us more opportunities to get more, th- more people through the programs, which is really what we want to do. So, Okay, so here's a question that's unscripted, um, and is, I apologise in advance for its forwardness, and don't answer it if, if you don't want to. <laughs> What's What's it cost to put someone through? Average uh, cost? Roughly, again, again, it depends on the on the venue, but roughly per head, we say around about nine hundred to thousand dollars per head, um, yeah. and we try to limit it twelve participants per retreat because effectively that's the 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 most efficient number that we can support in terms of having these discussions with people. Because, like I said, mm. we're sitting around. Part of the exercise is having people in in a group environment. Uh, talking about their experiences, so you know, the larger the group, the longer that that uh, that process takes. So, yeah. yeah, we try to limit try to limit it to twelve. So ten to twelve is 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 the optimum, and, and as I said, it's around about a thousand dollars a head, roughly. That's a significant amount of money to to do this. You know, just money doesn't grow on trees. You know, as as everyone knows, it's tough out there. So, um, you know, obviously, hopefully, with with that um, with that status, tax deductible status, charity status. Um, and you know the the level of um, of retention, and you know, the fact that you're actually building the industry would would hopefully hopefully lead to some um, someone seeing the value in exposure and, and getting right behind this a little bit harder. Yeah, that's that's the hope. Certainly, I mean, and the cost is because you know we're, it's, it's an all all expenses paid trip effectively. So we're we're providing yeah. all the fly fishing gear, licenses, uh, food, accommodation, transport, all that sort of stuff. Um, and like I said, the the Accommodation requirements are quite unique for these participants, so it's not just you know something you can rock up at a local pub and put everybody up for the night in, in communal com- accommodation. We have to be pretty disciplined in the types of venues that we choose that are suitable for the you know the participants that we've got and the challenges that they're facing. Yeah. Um, so that in itself sort of limits uh, the opportunities in terms of accommodations. So, yeah. uh, but as you say, you know, hopefully when we get uh, the um, the DGR and uh, charity status sorted out. It'll open up opportunities, um, especially on the grants front, because a lot of there are um, grants opportunities around, but most of them are tied to organisations that must have charity status because they use them as a tax deduction. So, um, so again, hopefully from a grants point of view, more opportunities will open up on that front once we uh, get the uh, DGR um, tick of approval. So, John, if Assuming that comes through, and you know, even even if it doesn't, or what what would your 
perfect vision for mending cars in the future. <laughs> you know, would it would it be you know retreat every second weekend or, or, or what, what? What what does it look like? Well, for me, to be somewhat altruistic about it, my, my own personal ambition is that hopefully we can set up this organisation so it becomes self-fulfilling, self-funding, and it can continue on long after I'm off this planet. I mean, yeah. that's that's the ideal thing for me in an altruistic sense. And I mean, in the short term, our strategic plan is basically built around trying to run, uh, at the most, uh, two men's and two women's retreat a year at this point in time. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's simply because, like I said, all our volunteers, are, all our members are pretty much volunteers. So about most of them, like myself, have have a full time employment um, that they uh, that they need to keep in consideration. So the available time and resources for us to run, you know, multiple retreats uh, may not be readily available as it would if we're all, you know, fully em- employed by the many cast as a business. So. Um, so recognising what our limitations are and maximising the opportunities that we can present to participants uh, really sees us looking at, like I said, two retreats per year you know, for each of the men and the women at this point in time and, and like I say, funding those um, in full um, and hopefully having money in the bank then to commit to retreats two, three years out. So, Wow. Yeah. Well, that would be, that'd be really good. Hey, um question here i don't know i don't know how to preface it but it's being involved in the program um affected what you want out of your own fishing uh oh that's a very good question um it's certainly changed my outlook on fishing per se i mean before i became involved with the organization when i originally got involved just being a fly casting instructor so my yeah. initial involvement was was going to be a fishing buddy and um, uh, that sort of developed then to becoming a, a member and then becoming on getting on the committee and then effectively uh, eventually being elected president um, and so my involvement before I was part of any cast my fishing experience was basically yeah I want to catch as many fish as I can um, and the bigger fish the better and um, and outfish your buddies and all that sort of stuff. So it was a little bit more competitive. But now my outlook's totally changed, and it's it's more about I don't really care if I catch fish or not. It's just it's just the experience. It's being in the environment. Um, like you say, you know, sharing that with other people. If you happen to be fishing side by side with somebody, but I still occasionally will go fishing by myself. <coughs> and like you say, you'll sit there and you can experiment different techniques or different. Uh, different rigs or different things they're always learning always challenging yourself um and so it isn't about catching fish per se anymore it's more about the experience and sharing the experience with others with others so yeah yeah it's it's um that was a question i really was interested to hear you know how how you went about things um you know like um i guess the allied question would be you know does it has it affected what you seek from fishing, you know, like have, you know, what you find and and what you're actually looking to find are two totally different things sometimes. Um, absolutely, and again, again, because I've got a casting interest, being a casting instructor, then yep. uh, some of the biomechanics and and you know, learning casting efficiencies and different types of casts and challenging yourself in that way is is, is part of it for me. But in, yep. in the pure in the pure fishing sense, it really is just about you know, being out in nature and. And experiencing it and and sharing it with others when you get the opportunity to. So. Yeah. Did do you find like um, do you have a predisposition for helping people? 
yes, I probably am. Um, <laughs> um, I do have that nature, I guess. Um, and again, yeah. the opportunity to do that has probably been mixed in in past experience. Like my professional um, professional background is I'm an operations manager at a company called Australian Wool Testing. So and I've been there for thirty three odd years. So yeah. So being being in a managerial role, you know, you, you're part of that um, sort of human dynamic and building teams and leading teams and all all that sort of thing. But I also think I've got a bit of a creative, very much a creative um, side to my personality, and so that's another kick I get out of these types of things is building these programs and 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 building the experiences for people and and hopefully leaving a legacy in that sense afterwards. So. Wow, that's amazing. Um, you know, like I, like I said to you off air, I'm, um, I'm probably not at that point in my life. Um, I could probably end up there. I don't know. I didn't know I had a, you know, a desire to help people till I started the podcast. And, um, and, you know, Chris was, um, you're saying, what do you want out of this podcast, Foles? I said, I just want to get people connected, you know? Um, you know, if you're fly, fly fishing can be, can be hard, you know, to, you know, I did want to meet people, make new networks and, and help other people create their own, you know, information networks and, and you know, fishing networks, so to speak. And um, um, one of the byproducts of that is, you know, invariably you, all of that becomes entwined with, you know, the deeper questions, uh, the deeper purposes in life. Um, and this is getting horribly introspective um, and I'm <laughs> feeling vulnerable sharing it, but uh, – <laughs> Yeah, it's it's an interesting point. Um, <laughs> you start to wonder if if you uh, you know really know yourself um, <laughs> as well. As no, you I, 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 I can care a hundred percent. And 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 part of the amazing thing for me going through this whole journey, like I say, moving yeah. to Victoria and and then being involved with mending casts and the people in the in the organisation, and then it, the especially the fly fishing community in general. I mean, it's, it's an amazing group of people, and the the, the the general generosity and camaraderie and affinity that everybody has, um, and you know, the people a lot of people know of everybody, not necessarily personally, but they know who who's who's you know in who's this state, and who's in that state, and, yeah, and yeah. who's who in the zoo, sort of thing. Um, and just that camaraderie and that connection between everybody is just just amazing, absolutely amazing. Yeah. Do you think that's peculiar to fly fishing, or do you think it's? That's a nasty thing to ask. Do you think it's is amplified in in fly fishing? Uh, I don't know because I don't really know what the alternative is. I mean, I, I, like I say, I'm not a spin fisherman or a boater, so I don't know necessarily right. if, there's, if there's the same dynamics in 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 those groups as there is in fly fishing i just know that from my experience with amongst fly fishing people is is the there's an amazing generosity and affinity amongst amongst all of us so yeah yeah i get that i get that yeah i i've been fortunate and in, <clears throat> in meeting you know people like that um and you know i sort of you know <clears throat> like you i wonder if you know, there's definitely people like that in, in other strands. I'm not for a moment saying that, you know, fly fishermen are better than anyone else, but, <laughs> but I just, it just seems to be, you know, that, that helping, um, at, you know, at the level that, that, um, you know, mending casts are very generous with their time. Like you said, it's all volunteer. Um, <clears throat> there's no financial upside here. It's just warm and fuzzies. Um, and like you said, you you know you you're building some sort of uh, humanitarian legacy, which is fantastic. Um, 
Um, I've got another question here. Um, how how can or or can lay people be involved, and how how do they go about it? If if that if they're feeling like they want to contribute or or start, you know, building their own sort of legacy in that regard, um, it, how how can a lay person contribute and get involved? Well, like I say, we're we're always looking for volunteers, um, either for people to come onto the committee and help, or just as volunteers through our retreat programs or as fundraisers. Um, yeah. And simple, like I said, in simple terms, because we're self-funded, we know we really appreciate when um, clubs or groups or or uh, businesses that sort of thing um, provide monetary support to us, because that's essentially what we need to to put these programs on. So, you know, if there's fundraisers that people want to run, even if it's just, just a sausage sizzle down at Bunnings or something basic like that, it doesn't really matter. I mean, every every single cent that we get gets gets invested back into the retreat programs and the activities that support them. So none of us take any gratuities or income or salaries out of the out of the process at all. It's all 100% returned back into the, the programs that we run. So... Yeah, like I say, and in those uh, opportunities to do fundraising would be appreciated. I mean, there's uh, links on our website. Uh, our email address is admin at mendingcast.org if you want to email us and um, sound out opportunities to become involved as a participant. Um, if you, or if you know people who are um, dealing with cancer and think that they would benefit by, becoming, by being participants in the programs, by all means, reach out and we can put you on our waiting list for our next retreat. Um, again, if they want to volunteer at our retreats or volunteer in other fundraising events, by all means, get in contact us via email, um, and uh, we'll be happy to um, to hook you up and uh, hopefully get you involved in things as the opportunities arrive. So, yeah, yeah, that um, that's key. There, we're going to throw your um, all your contacts in the uh, in uh, on the Facebook and and um, and Instagram preamble too. So. Um, We'll we'll make sure they're in there, and you know we'll, we'll be able to point point people to to um to the to the touch points for for various um uh, processes there. Um, you've got uh, is is there any sort of significant upcoming events that you want to bring to people's? Uh, yeah, well, like I said, our, uh, one of our major fundraisers is running online at the moment, which is the uh, 12 Days of Fishmas auction. So if you look up our, yep. our Facebook page or Instagram page, you'll find a link there to the, uh, to the uh, air auction site where that's running at the moment. Um, like I said, our next um, Casting for Recovery retreat's due in the end of April at Marysville. So again, if people want to become involved with that or help fund it or uh, know some people who benefit for, by becoming participants, please um, get in contact with us. We'd be happy to talk to you. Yep. Um, we will have some other fundraising events planned, uh, I think, early April. Um, we're looking at running a, a, an event with, uh, in conjunction with the Northern Suburbs Fly Fishing Club, which is uh, situated up at Yarrambat. So keep a keep an eye on our social channels for some more information about that mm-hmm. uh, that fundraising event and how to get involved uh, get involved there too. So yeah, right. Okay, no problem. All right, John. I can't think of anything else. Um, uh, we've we've talked exhaustively on a lot of those questions um, and. I feel like we've covered a lot. Have, have we? Is there anything I've forgotten that you wanted me to tick off, or anything you want to ask me? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. First of all, say thanks for the opportunity. You know, it's, it's been a great. I know, I know we've been throwing around the idea for quite a while, and um, yeah. it's great we could better come to fruition and 
and join the um, ex- uh, the esteemed alumni that you've had um, go through your podcast before, and so it's, it's, thanks no for the opportunity. All, so, it's like, just like to finish, like I mean, our main challenges for the next twelve months are, like I said, getting the charity status and the, and the DDR status sorted, which we'll hope to have probably in the next couple of months. So, again, look out for some notifications coming about when that happens. Yep. Um, fundraising and, like I say, fundraising and grants and and sponsorship is always a uh, a focus for us. So, like I say, if anybody knows, if anybody would be interested in contributing or funding or uh, donating goods and services to us, by all means, contact us. We're happy to talk to you. Um, mm-hmm. Another interesting opportunity, which I haven't mentioned up until now, is that um, I actually had an email from somebody at a, one of the prominent universities this week um, sounding us out about the possibility of doing a, um, a research project into... Um, the programs that we run and the benefits that fly fishing has on uh, people's mental and physical health. Um, so that's something that hopefully could be an exciting um, development in the near future as well. So um, I'm cool. hoping that some um, that that may come to fruition too. Well, that's um, that is incredible, and um, uh, I would I know these sort of research <clears throat> uh, initiatives take many years to have good results like to sorry to have significantly um um results that are that we can use um but i'll be telling my wife straight up that uh that um, we need to do this for science and i uh, need to fish more so <laughs> <laughs> and 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 it's uh it's acad- academically proven to be beneficial so it's empirical, mate. It's science. You can't argue with it. She's, she's a scientist, so she'll have nothing. Not a leg to stand on, mate. This is this is great. Uh, Q- You've made my night. Yeah, this is uh, so good. Q- QED, mate. That's what it is. <laughs> All right, mate. Um, listen, John, thanks for your time. It's been delightful. Um, we'll see a lot more of you on the socials coming up, and I, I hope um, I hope tonight raises um, awareness and goodwill for. Um, uh for mending cars it, it's such a good thing you guys are doing and uh, that you're doing it all off your own bat is just incredible thank you very much mate no thank you for the opportunity really appreciate it so uh, thanks very much all right. See you. cheers